HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Christoph Barron. We'll talk to Christoph about making wine in the Pacific Northwest, Champagne, and his multitude of projects. We'll taste the horsepower Syrah for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Christoph Barron's family dates back to the mid-17th century in Charles Soumont, in Champagne. He studied viticulture in Champagne and Burgundy. After meeting an American in Burgundy, Christoph was convinced to head west to Oregon and Washington and discovered their stony vineyards. He bought his first vineyard back in 1997 and farms biodynamically. Christoph has unstoppable energy, ambition, curiosity, and a respect for the land. His Bionic Wines portfolio is mind-boggling, including Champagne, Christoph Barron, Cayuse, or Category, Horsepower, and No Girls. Christoph's wines have reached cult status along with critical acclaim. The question to Christoph, is all that enough? And what's next? Hello, Sam. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Christoph Barron. I've been meaning to have you on forever, and uh, I'm glad that we could sound. Christoph, we're talking to you. Where are we, you and I? Where are we sitting? We are sitting on the 14th floor of the One Hotel on uh, 1414 uh, 58th Avenue in the corner of 58th and 6th Avenue, uh, Manhattan. So it's fortuitous for me that you and I get to sit in person. Why are you in New York? Because I love New York and it's reopening. And uh, last weekend there was like Fête du Champagne. Ah. And it's an amazing event that is organized by uh, several wonderful sommeliers, Daniel Jonas and also Peter Lim. And it's a great event. As I said, uh, it's always fun to uh, visit with some old friends from Champagne. 
and also make new friends there. I and was I was at the grand tasting, and it probably is the greatest collection of champagne makers in one room, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it was great. Um, all right, let's get started. People may know your wines. They may be regular drinkers. They may pull them out in restaurants, but they may not know a lot about you. So quickly, tell me about your journey in life and wine that got you really to where you are today, which is this whole bionic wines empire. And this goes back to your family and champagne. Sure, like what you said, I'm, I'm originally from, from Champagne, from the Marne Valley, a small village called Charlie-sur-Marne, where my family has been a family of vignerons over there since the 17th century and more exact, exactly uh, 1677. Several centuries, yes, yes, indeed, long time ago. And then I decided at age 15 to become a vigneron. This is what I said to my dad. And my parents sent me to uh, Avise to study uh, viticulture and enology. There, I spent three years so there. So they encouraged it. Yes, absolutely, okay. completely. Right. I think my dad was very happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, I did transfer to uh, Burgundy, to Bone, to finish my degree in viticulture and enology. And then I did the uh, University of Dijon there. I studied there. And, uh, and then at the time, uh, that was back in the late 80s, and the big buzz in Burgundy and in Bone was DDO, Domaine Drouin, Oregon. And what the Durance family has, has done in the uh, So they were the, the first Valley. to make that move, or they were early? They were the first. And back home, people were like, what's going on? What's we gotta... going on? Really? Yes, and I really developed a passion and a love for still Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and Burgundy, obviously. And I said, I want to go there. I want to see what's going on in, uh, in the Willamette Valley. I, I, will... I feel like I need to go and, and explore that new frontier. There were no other places that evoked that kind of curiosity. I mean, that was the place. That was the place because of the Drin's family. It's crazy. All right, so keep going. Then uh, this is where I ended up in uh, in the Pacific Northwest in 1993. I said I would like to get a job there, so I applied for a visa. I got a visa for 18 months as an intern, and I could not find a job in the Willamette Valley at the time for more than three months, basically working harvest. And I really wanted to spend more than three months in so the So the jobs States. were turnover jobs. Right. Like do this and then you're out, next, next. Exactly. Okay. And, and a friend of mine called me, I was still in France, and uh, we went to college together and he said, uh, hey, Christophe, uh, I've got to go back to France. My visa is going to expire and my boss in Walla Walla is looking for a new intern to replace me. And this is actually how I ended up in Walla Walla. I look at, at the map mound and I look at Walla Walla and McMenville. And on the map mound, that was very only a, a centimeter and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, close enough. And I arrived in Walla Walla in the spring of 1993. And I drove my bug convertible there on a weekend to the Willamette Valley. And this is the first time in my life I realized how big and huge this country is. Yeah. Um, when your friend turned you on to the job, was it a winery or yes. what, what, what was it? I yes. mean, was it anything anybody would know at this point? Well, it was a winery job. Uh, okay. I work, I spent over one year working for Waterbrook Winery in, uh, in Walla Walla. Okay. All right. So you obviously do that for a few years. Take me to the point where, I mean, 
what compels you to, did you always want to own your own vineyard? Were you always looking for property? I mean, how did that progression go? Absolutely. So the, the idea was spending one year in Walla Walla, and then I was able to uh, work the harvest of 1994 for uh, David Adelsheim at Adelsheim Vineyards. Legendary. Great, legendary. Great, great vigneron there. And then after that, I went back to France. And every time I would go back to France, my dad will ask me the same question. Son, when are you going to come back and work for the family business? And I told him I was not interested yet. I still wanted to travel and learn more about the uh, new world wine industry. Did you have siblings where, you know, you and them could do it? Or if one of them didn't do it, you know, your other siblings would? I mean, did your dad feel that it was secure in the family or how'd that work out? I have one sister and I've got many, many cousins, but I'm the oldest of the son, you know, of the boys there. So that's the reason why it sounds like it was some kind of like uh, important for my dad, for me to come back. Sure. So I'm getting a little ahead because you still have to finish the story. But at some point you commit to the Walla Walla Valley, but you're also involved with the family, but you also have your own champagne. So those are questions that we have to answer. Don't get the air. Finish the thing. So you, you, you're working with Edelsheim. Your friend got your job earlier on. When do things become your own? Back in 1996. After working in Australia and New Zealand and then in Romania, then this is when I sat down with uh, my father and the family and told them that I was not interested actually to work oh boy. with a family business. Uh, my father understood it. Uh, my mom it wasn't had a, a shock, very hard right? time. It was not a shock. Your mother was, was sad because you weren't going to be around. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this is when I told my family, look, I would like to go back to the Willamette Valley. I had some saving at the time, and I, I'm going to look for land there. I would like to purchase 10 to 20 acres and plant Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. That was the plan. But on my way to the Willamette Valley, I stopped in Walla Walla to spend some time with one of my friends and to uh, recover my car that I left over there. And everywhere I will go, I will always travel with my French wine atlas. And then I was with Scott Byerly, he's a local farmer, a wheat farmer in Walla Walla. And we were having aperitif one of these nights, and then I show him the French atlas and photos of Chateauneuf-du-Pape, of the great vineyards of, of the Southern Rhone. And I told Scott, look, look where we grow vineyards in, in France, in some very, very unhospitable, stony soil. And he so, goes, so, so you found a vineyard site. What was this, 96? 96. Um, I would guess that the sites you found, most people would probably pass on. I mean, you're talking about fields of softball-styled stones. <laughs> Right. People look at that and go, what the, you know, what the hell am I going to do? So why, why set up there? Well, because when Scott saw the photos and he said, well, I know where there is some stones like this in a valley. I'm like, wow, can you tell me there tomorrow morning, please? Because literally I was leaving for the Willamette Valley the next day. Right. The next day. And he took me there. And this is when I first discovered the stones of the Walla Walla Valley. And there is orchards 
everywhere planted there. There's cherries, apples, fruit orchards, and there was a 10-acre block that was an open field and just covered and littered with, with cobblestones there. So what you found in Walla Walla, did you think you would possibly come across that in Willamette Valley? I mean, no. did you? Not at all. So what you discovered kind of set you up for what you were going to grow and somewhat of a dream fulfilled. Yes, that absolutely. That challenge, right? Absolutely. And everything, because of that discovery that day, um, this is, there was pure serendipity. And I decided actually to stay in Walla Walla and to purchase that piece of land and to plant Syrah, mainly Syrah and Viognier at the time. So I don't know if everybody knows this. I mean, if they know certain areas, certain wines... Tell people the effect that growing vineyards in very stony, you know, terroir and where the soil is not, you know, deep and rich. It's probably like a topsoil. What what effect does that have on the wine? I mean, what it's obviously something you wanted and you were looking for, but what does that produce for you? There's a common denominator with great terroir all over the world. That means very shallow topsoil and great subsoil in terms of like mineral, like limestone in Burgundy, chalk in Champagne, and you go so on and so on, gravel in, in, uh, in Bordeaux, granite in uh, Northern Rhone, uh, slate in Germany, right. and et cetera, et cetera. So these, those cobbles are, are the same. I mean, it's very, very poor. And my great-grandfather used to say, if you can grow wheat, don't bother planting a vineyard. <laughs> that means in other words it's more practical but yes but for, to have a real sense of terroir and the best wine you need to have the vines needs to struggle this is as simple as that so talk a little more about that by being around stones and poor soil they're not they have to fight to survive right so they're going deeper or they're spreading out tell me the roots the roots go deeper because they have like to search for this water, for the moisture. And then therefore, they have, they're gaining the true essence of terroir by, by just sending their roots very, very deep. So by doing that, and it kind of goes back to my original question, by doing that, they're finding, you know, moisture and they're going deep. Then you're getting the true expression of the terroir. Absolutely, because what the composition is they're yes, set up in there. This is liquid stones. This is what it's it's all about, and that you cannot get that with a, a root system that is very superficial and stay on the surface. And the stones are very loose, so that's very easy actually for the root system to find their way down. Because they could move around. It's not like rock solid or sheets of you know slate or whatever. Absolutely. So the effect on the fruit. Is what you've been talking about, is it sort of a liquid stone, stony? I mean, is that the expression that gets passed along? I like to use that, that word, liquid stone. It's pretty much what it is. And, of course, we've got great sense of terroir over there. That means that savoriness that comes from the stones is very savory. You have a lot of salinity coming from those wines, um, a lot of umami. The, the fruit character is not what comes first out of those wines. So wait, let me, for my, for me. So 
planting there, there's a salinity. I want to repeat this. People yes. say I repeat a lot, but there's a salinity and umami, which is a savoriness, a savoriness that you would get in that type of setup that you wouldn't just get, you know, in the Columbia Gorge or Willamette or whatever. Or even somewhere else in the Walla Walla Valley. It's super unique. It's super unique. It's a very unique area. This alluvial fan of the uh, ancient riverbed of the Walla Walla River, it's about what over 3,500 acres. So it's pretty small if you look at it. So here's what I don't understand. So you come from a historic French Champagne family. You study in Burgundy. You work harvests around the world. How do you wind up in a stony vineyard focusing towards Rhone-type type You know, why? I mean, wh where did, was this something that you always thought about? Did it hit you when you saw that? I mean, it's kind of unusual. Indeed, because normally. If you made Burgundy or stayed in Champagne, that would make sense. This is like the opposite. Yes, but I really like this essence of pioneer. Pioneer. Okay. That's the first things. I love that. Then I should have been in the Willamette Valley without discovering the stones. Then, you know, I took the risk to stay and say, I'm going to stick there. And for a simple reason, I look at the great opportunity. First of all, if I would have moved in the Willamette Valley, I would always have been on the coattail of, Ver uh, of uh, Véronique Drouin. Drouin, right. right. I would not have been the first French vineyard there. Which is what you there. there but <laughs> right. And more power to the, to, the, to the family there. But there, I would have been the first French vigneron in Walla Walla, planting in the terroir that hasn't been discovered yet. In fact, there was a vineyard in the stones up until the late 50s. So I consider myself planting the first commercial vineyards since then. Right. And as we get into the show, you'll see that you haven't stopped there. Um, so it was sort of an act of I don't know what you'd call it, you know, renegade or mm -hmm. I came here for this, but screw that. I'm going to do this. Um, I mean, your life would have changed if you pulled into Walla Walla and stayed, I mean, into uh, Willamette if you stayed there. No regrets, right? No regrets at all. All right. Um, I think that's a lot of fun. Um, it's, it's ironic how you took it to, you know, the next level. I mean, one of your wineries, which we'll talk about or as category is really a replica of, you know, the Northern Rhone. I mean, I think as you spend time there, you really, really got deeper into the vision. Um, all right. So let's talk about your wineries. All right. Um, each one has a different story. Um, I think each one came about, you know, for different reasons. Um, One of the things I want to ask you, and I wrestle with this, is I see old world thinking and winemaking, and I see new world. Um, I guess I may answer your question and say that you merge both, but, I mean, aren't you looking to the old world, and don't you have new world ideas on how you want to approach these vineyards and the wines? Well, ab absolutely. This being said, the tradition is everything. And all the ideas are coming from the old world, are coming from France, are coming from Champagne, Burgundy, Northern Rhone, Southern Rhone. And I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. In fact, there is no need to reinvent the wheel. 
But looking you got at, rid of the wheel. Right. <laughs> we'll talk about that, but go ahead. It means like re-looking and finding some very unique terroir with great potential. And then starting to plant the way like everyone else were planting at the time in the Walla Walla Valley with uh, minimal funding. And then we started like to be more popular and the ones became uh, very well known. And um, obviously, I was the business was more finan financially sound and I reinvested in, in vineyards. I'm completely obsessed with vineyards and viticulture because this is where the foundation is uh, for great wine. And that means trying new things in the vineyards, uh, higher, higher uh, density planting, things like that. You know, when we started Caius, we planted uh, the vineyard. They were 10 feet between the, the, the rows and four feet between the vines up until 2000. In 2001, I decided actually to experiment and plant more vines per acre or per hectare. And we went six feet between the rows and four between the vines. So what does that do to the fruit and what kind of wine? I mean, what's the difference that you've you know, created by doing that? I mean, it was an experiment. You had the product, the fruit. You made the wine. I mean, what, what did you find? Well, we found out that actually the rows being closer to each other, they have more shade in the fruit zone. And what means that actually it takes longer for the fruit to, uh, to ripen, a little longer, five days, uh, usually, maybe a little less, seven to five, uh, seven days, a good week there. And actually the wines are different, completely different. We found out that they're still very, there's nice fruit quality, like the, the first vineyards that were planted. This being said, you also have in the mouthfeel something that is a wine with more tension and more structure. So for me, that was like a, a big eye-opening. I saw, ah, more vines to the acre. Then for, I've got a, an interesting mouthfeel, more tannins, more structures. It sounds like it worked out well. It worked very well. Yeah. And this is Armada. This is God. God were the knows. yields bigger? Because you, I, not that that was necessarily your goal, but in the end, were the yields bigger? Well, a little bigger, but not too, uh, too nothing much. Nothing crazy, right? No, nothing crazy because we kept, we kept the, uh, dropping more fruit on the ground. Right. Whatever it took to it took keep to the existing vines. Absolutely. Um, one of the things I love about you, and you really haven't talked about it, but it's you know very, very admirable, is the way you farm. In reality, your family were farmers, and you're a farmer. Um, as much as we're galloping around New York and going to champagne festivals, you got to get your ass back in the field soon. Um, you've made a big commitment to organic and biodynamic farming, which in reality, is the direction everyone should be going, but they're not, but you are. Um, when, why, and how, you know, did all that happen? I guess some of the answers are obvious, but tell me. Since we planted the first vineyard in, uh, in 1997, we've been organic, uh, and farming was an organic approach. This being said, uh, there's no certification there. And then uh, in 2002, we decided actually to switch from organic farming to biomic Why? farming. Why? Um, I mean, they're very different. There's a bigger commitment to biodynamics. You, you were ready for that? I mean, we, I was ready for that for a, a simple reason is 
Some of them were here in my backyard in, in Burgundy. And one was La Loubise Leroy, famous Domaine Leroy, and also one Claude Le Fleve from Domaine Le Fleve in Puny, Montrachet. Among the biggest names. The biggest name. And I had the chance to test wine from Le Clove Voyon when uh, they were doing actually some experiments there with like conventional farming and uh, organic farming and biodynamic farming. And the bionic wines, to me, was always, had the best expression of the terroir and had so much more salinity and freshness and real sense of terroir, of place, that I knew one day in my career as a vigneron, I will have to embrace uh, those techniques. And the conventional farming, when you compared, was so far away from that. So less. There wasn't that expression, that energy, whatever you described. Absolutely. Those wines were kind of boring. So you just needed a little proof to keep you on the right track. Um, what about in the cellar? I mean, obviously, you're not going to farm biodynamically and then start playing around with the wines. I mean, tell me about your philosophy in the cellar. Obviously, low intervention. Low intervention, I think you have to put the ego of the vigneron on the side. It's very, very important. What does that mean? Not what you want, but what the... What, do, what the fruit dictates. Okay. This is all about the fruit. It's, so, it's not your style. It's what the fruit says. Yes. And obviously what I like, yeah. style-wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you ask me what my favorite wine from... From Burgundy, Northern Rhone, Southern Rhone, we can talk about that. So, but once you, defini you define your style or the style of wine that you really like, then of course, with the farming, it's 90% of the quality of, of a bottle of wine. Then after that, you can fine tune inside and in a wine studio. Okay, but that means basically test every day, every time during fermentation, and decide exactly what you are going to do, what kind of punch on the intensity of the punch down, of the pump over, and so on. So it's, there is no recipe. It's different for every wine every year? Every year and every day. That's crazy. Um, you mentioned something, if I ask you your favorite burgundy. Now, the wines that you make, are they inspired by the styles of the wines that you admired? Absolutely. And they are? Well, Northern Rhone, uh, obviously, because we are t talking mainly about Syrah, and right. of course, Grenache, so Northern Rhone is, is Domaine Jamais, of course, is Guenon, is, is Clap, uh, in Cornas. Uh, There's a whole bunch of guys. Uh, it's, it's Bernard Fauri in Hermitage, and it's always um, vigneron that use some uh, old cluster. So I was going to ask you, so you do mostly whole cluster? I really enjoy working with the old clusters. They have to be ripe, of course. Right. It's very, very important. And but finish, I'm sorry. Yes. And, and then so we use a ferment of old cluster. Uh, there, again, there's no recipe. You test the, the stems and you decide some years, 100%. On some blocks, some years, it's like 60%, 70 
all across the board there. That's what I was going to ask. You'll mm-hmm. make the changes necessary based on the fruit. Based on the fruit and based on the year. Yeah. All right. So we're talking to Christoph Barron. We're going to have to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about all of Christoph's wineries, projects, things that he's doing. And I promise you that will offer a lot more insight into what's going on um, in Walla Walla, what he's doing, Champagne. So you're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you, My Family Recipe, from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Christoph Barron. Christoph oversees, I guess at some point in his life, he said, I'm going to call all of this Bionic Wines. <laughs> now, Christoph makes a wine called Bionic Frog, which is a legendary wine. We'll get to that. But now we're going to break down Bionic Wines. So the obvious thing to start with is champagne. It's in your blood, and it's a project right now that I think you're spending a lot of time with. Um, I think champagne, Christoph Barron, is unique in many ways. You know, you and I just tasted 40, 50 champagnes in two hours a few days ago. Tell me about this. I mean, we're talking single vineyard, single grape. I mean, there's a vision here. And I think people are going to realize that, you know, when you put your mind to something. So tell me about Champagne Christophe Barron. It's a very unique process. Um, obviously, it's very, very interesting because I was not interested to take the business over. And I decided to spend 25 years in, uh, in the United States developing uh, Bionic Wines and vineyards in Walla Walla. And then back in 2003, my parents uh, decided to actually give their vineyards to my sister Isabel and myself, and we sat around the table. And my father said, okay, here are all the, all the vineyards, and you're going to Everything? decide. All the vineyards are there, and we need to div- divide up. You know, Isabel, you're So going- that was their... Movement out of movement. the day-to-day, you know, being vignerons and owning champagne. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Because they... Did you... Was that a surprise or did no, you expect... No, not at all. To... You have to plan ahead because of okay. French taxes, inheritance right. taxes. So you have... Uh, we're very high, unfortunately, but you have to plan ahead. So that's what they did. And they asked us what we wanted, you know, if we have a preference. And I'm like, well, if I could actually uh, have some old... Vineyard Pinot Meunier, I will be very delighted. 
And my sister was like, well, I will be fine to have like younger vineyards because <laughs> my sister sells her fruit. And the Chardonnay. <laughs> and Chardonnay, Pinot Meunier also, With, but right. she sells the fruit to the family. So having like younger vineyards for her who produce a little more was okay. And, and for me, I wanted to, uh, to have the old vines there and because uh, I had the plan of creating a small brand of uh, vineyard designated single grapes Pinot Meunier Champagne. Pinot Meunier only. Pinot Meunier only, because right. it's where we're from in Charlie sur Marne. This is the, the kingdom of Pinot Meunier. This is, is the west part of the Marne Valley. We live only 69 kilometers north uh, east of Paris, very close to the capital. And uh, this is what Pinot Meunier does, perform the best in our area. So you get the family vineyards. It's now yours. When, how does this progress? I mean, do you start making your own champagnes right away? Are you selling? I mean, when does Champagne Christophe Barron sort of hit the bottle in the market? First, we started with a 2014 vintage. Okay. So I sat so down, I sat down around the table with my cousins, uh, with Liz, Claire, and Aline. So three, three wonderful women. And I said, I would like to, every year, create one champagne from one vineyard and take one vineyard back every year, but still sell you some fruit. So it has to be a win-win situation for everyone. So I still sell some fruit to the family and they take care of my project and they follow my protocol in terms of farming and the creation of the wine in a cellar. That's crazy. Um, so no dosage. No dosage. Single vineyard. No, let's tell people no dosage means you add no sugar. No sugar. Uh, disgorgement. We don't add any uh, sugar. So it's a brute nature. So in other words, I said no maquillage, no makeup. This is definitely the pure essence of Pinot Meunier. What? How many vintages? I mean, where are we at now? You started in 2014? With one wine, one parcel in 2015 with two different wines. 2016, three different wines. 2017, again, three different parcels. And in 2018, we're adding a fourth parcel. And it's very fun to my heart because it's located in a little hamlet called Porteron, where the family uh, is from. And that vineyard was planted in 1925. This is my oldest vines. So tell before we move on, tell me two things. Um, I think virtually everyone's drank champagne. I don't think they know what the blends are. Some people don't even know that it's blended. And Pinot Meunier is certainly the outlier. You Don't know, when you think hey, there's Blanc de Blancs and, you know, uh, Noir. What are the characteristics of a Meunier-only champagne compared? Usually a Meunier is very round in the mouth, is fruit forward, and it's very easy to drink. That sounds like what most people would love. Would love, exactly. Right. This being said, when Meunier is planted in very heavy clay with old vineyards and low yield, you are creating some wines with definitely more depth, more uh, density, and more tension as well. And this is what I'm trying to create with the style of Champagne at Champagne Christophe Baron. Are you there? I mean, are you tasting it? Are you getting there? Or it's still vintage by, by vintage? I mean, are you accomplishing those goals? We're accomplishing those goals. Ab absolutely. And actually, since the first millésime, first vintage, 
definitely you can tell that we are, we are already there because the vines are like over 50 years old. Right. Um, so what's interesting is you have to be one of the newer champagne makers and companies, you know, in the champagne region. I'm sure there's other people, but when you think about all the names people know, I mean, the family has been around, but your brand is the new guy on the block. New guy on the block. And this is very uh, interesting because it's champagne is like an Eldorado. It's, it's like Texas probably over 100 years ago when they're tapping the soil there to right. get oil. Right. There is new, new uh, grower champagne every year. It's just unbelievable. And thanks to uh, uh, people like uh, Anselm Celos, who already started the movement, respect to Anselm right there. And then to the new generation that are actually following, following this approach. I mean, it's like, it's like, the it's just, just unbelievable what's going on in Champagne. It's unbelievable. I mean, the whole grower movement, everything. Um, all right. So that's Champagne Christophe Barron. Um, we are in New York. We are in the United States. Is it available? Absolutely. Is it a restaurant wine? Is it in certain retail? I mean, people are going to say, wow, that sounds pretty cool. Where do I get it? Well, you get it, like if you, uh, first of all, we sell about 90% of the champagne uh, through our mailing list privately to our clients. And okay, then, so mailing list is the play. And, and, and 10% goes actually to a great distributor like Skernik, for instance, right. and they, they find their place in the best wine shop. They know and best where to get it out Absolutely. To. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, the, the production is very limited. It's about 1,500 magnums per parcel. So altogether, 6,000 magnums for the world. <laughs> right. So it is, it is pretty rare. I mean, um, so you have to pay attention. All right, let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk about horsepower vineyards, which is certainly your nod to the past. But before we get into that, you know, we have a segment at the end of the show called the Weekly Wine Sip where we taste and evaluate a wine. But we've opened the wine already. We'll talk about it later. But I just want to say that Christoph and I are sitting here sipping on a 2014 horsepower, um, the Tribe Syrah. Um, and we'll talk about all its characteristics. But this is truly, you know, another interesting vineyard. Um, when I say it's a nod to the past, <laughs> I mean, not hard for you to explain. Tell me, you know, why you wanted to do all of this and what it is. It's, it is a very uh, interesting question because, as I said, going from low-density planting to moderate density planting with Caius and being uh, with biodynamic farming methods, I thought it was very important actually to close the circle. And what does it mean? It means to bring the animal element on the properties. And that means to plant some vineyards who are very high density, three and a half feet by three and a half which means about 3,550 vines per acre. So three and a half feet from each vine and across to the next row is three and a half. Absolutely. And that's as dense as it comes? Well, well it, could be, it could be denser than that. that's pretty damn dense, right? For, for the United States, it's yeah. very dense. Okay. And it's, each vine uh, actually is trained on its own stake there, like very much like in the northern Rhone. And the reason why I decided also to do that, because I saw that, having more vines per acre, adding some concentration, but also some density and structure to the wines. And guess what? We planted the first vineyard in 2008, 
tribe was planted in 2009. The first, vi uh, the first wine actually was released in 2011. And right away, we saw the great potential of those vineyards because of that structure and tension in the wines. Great verticality. So you're, you're not mentioning two things which are pretty interesting. The vines are farmed not mechanically, and they're certainly not on flat land. So tell me more about that. The horsepower are on flat land. Horsepowers? Yes. Oh, I'm thinking of or category. Right. I'm sorry, the horsepowers. But my bad. But it's farmed. With draft horses. Do the name horsepower. So we started with one draft horse uh, in 2008, and now we have six draft horses. Five different vineyards for a total of almost 19 acres. So can you imagine every time you take the horses for a pass to cultivate and to keep the weeds down, it's about 50 miles that you have to be behind a horse. So we have several teamsters, of course. It's a very, very physical work, but that's what it takes. And so there's four vineyards, six horses, like you said, tightly spaced. Let's talk about the wine wines. So you're making the tribe, which we're drinking now. Right. Sur, you help me with my French, Echalat. Sur Echalat, which means on the steak. We have, we have a Grenache and a, uh, and a Syrah there. Then we have High Contrast. It's another vineyard, 100% Syrah. And we have Fiddleneck, which is like really focused on Grenache. And we planted a fifth vineyard three years ago. It's called Alogo, which means actually horse in Greek. Ah, so... Very Rhone, very Syrah, a little Grenache. Um, the current vintage is what? 2018. 18. And that's, again, that's available in the market mostly through mailing lists. Through the mailing list, yes. It's, it's good like to be on the mailing list. But we also sell to distributors and restaurants. Okay. So it's available in New York and, and, and on both, both coasts. So that's horsepower. Horsepower is very interesting because you decided to approach the farming a different way. I don't think a lot of people would have the patience or, you know, whatever. Well, it's, uh, that's very interesting. I was talking with the Champenois, La Fête du Champagne. Uh, in fact, Jean-Baptiste uh, Le Caillon, Le Caillon from, from Rodrère there, and I, uh, because they, they also farm with draft horses at Rodrère there, about 40 uh, hectares. And I, I told him, I showed the photo, and it's like, that's good. There's some crazy Frenchmen in America, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's spread over here. So that means, it's, I, I took that as a compliment, believe me. So planting close together definitely has an effect on the wine. Ah, completely. By using horses, the land is treated differently because you're not tilling. It's not mechanical. Does that have a major effect on, you know, how the wines turn out? Or Actually, it's more of the quality of the soil. So it's very loose soil. That means the soils are not compacted. Uh, just the pressure near the root system is very low. That means the, the root system goes very, very deep there and and of course he has a quality on the on the final product on the fruit that you right. uh, you harvest right so that's horsepower vineyards let's talk about another interesting project the nice thing is everything's interesting so it's easy <laughs> and fun to talk about you have a winery called no girls wines right right 
the nice thing I saw about this is you've had an assistant winemaker for many years, which is a nice thing. Right. Um, and she's been very much involved in this project, um, Elizabeth. So I'll set this up. This is a winery where you say you empowered women where, to create empowered wine. So it's empowered women creating empowered wine. Right. So obviously you woke up one day and uh, what did you say? There's not enough women in the industry. There's not enough representation. They're not getting the recognition or respect. How does No Girls come about? That's a very good question. First, I would like to say that there is no winery. There is a wine studio. and Which is an interesting story on its own. Exactly. Because and there, the name came from there. Well, and there is no winemaker at Caius, and there's no assistant winemaker. There is a vigneron, and there's an assistant vigneron. So we create, we don't make. This is our approach here. There is that uh, crafting approach. And basically, the reason why no girls, I bought some building downtown Walla Walla back in early 2000, and that was the oldest brothel in Walla Walla that closed in the late 50s. And when you go upstairs, nothing has changed. And on the wall, it's painted no girls. That's it. <laughs> That's it. So we thought actually, you know, that uh, Walla Walla was not as glamorous as you as it is right now. Then, as now. Then, yeah. exactly. So never forget your roots and your past. And Walla Walla should not forget their past. And that's the reason why we say to call it No Girls, because my assistant, Vigneron, uh, has a great palette. She's super talented, and I really wanted to give her carte blanche on this project and to develop her craft as well. And I thought there was like everything came together. And, and one of the things I would like actually to add is like my aunt in Burgundy was the first woman actually to graduate from Enology and Viticulture School in Bonn in 1970. Wow. As well. And I really enjoy working with women in one industry. I th personally, I think they have better palate than, than men. Better everything. Better everything and less ego. <laughs> wow. And, and uh, so that's, that's the reason why I, I really... Enjoy working with, with Elizabeth, and now we have uh, an assistant vigneron, and uh, that's her name is, is Karen as well. So I'm surrounded by those very talented women. So is the building a tasting room or? The building for the time being is vacant, okay. and we have idea actually to renovate the buildings and to turn the building into some uh, some uh, of our office and uh, some other crazy project, maybe. So it was the inspiration for the name and the brand. Absolutely. Now let's talk about the wines. There's a La Paciencia vineyard. Is yes. that your vineyard? This is one of our vineyards, absolutely. You make a couple of wines. So actually uh, three wines. So Elizabeth uh, produce a Syrah, a Grenache, and a Tempranillo. It's a 10-acre right. block, and there's but a I mean, third there's of each. a couple of wines from La Paciencia, yeah. and you source... Or you have other vineyards, like for the or it's all La Paciencia. It's all La Paciencia. Okay. It and the production is about three hundred cases per wine. Okay, that's it. And that's it. Jesus. So you, we we like to create basically uh, uh, kind of tea. It's a tease. Unfortunately, you know, I mean, we we could produce and sell twice as much of La Paciencia, but we just don't have the land. So I could validate that and tell you a little story. So I've been a wine collector since the nineties. And like every old Jewish guy from New York, I started with Napa cabs, 
but I've, you know, my love is the Northern Rhone, Barolo, all that stuff. Um, and I was on every wine list from Harlan to Schaefer to David Abreu. And as I became more aware, Saxa, Menkaius, you know, these are guys that are making amazing wine. I think it took me six, seven years to get on your wine list. <laughs> okay. At the time, at the time. I probably right. applied, I don't know, 10 years ago. I've probably been on it for three years. Um, you know, I buy whatever I can get. You guys are so gracious with, you know, uh, library wines. And if there's any stuff available, you could put in for it. And I usually get a lot of it. Um, but one of the fun and interesting things was out of nowhere pops up a thing where we're sending you a no girls lucky eight. Double lucky, number eight. Nothing to do with, you know, me being involved with no, it was, I was as a Cayuse thing. So how does that come about? It unfortunately came during the pandemic because mm. every first weekend in April, we invite our customers on the Cayuse list, our, our friends and clients to come to Walla Walla, spend the weekend there, visit, uh, wineries there, of course, enjoy wonderful food, and then come to the Caius uh, weekend, taste some futures, some wines from Burles, and also pick up the one they purchased the previous year. And the last couple of years, we could not do it, unfortunately. And that's the reason why I said, look, we, are going, we have that great wine. It's a new Gotta wine. something. Well, and I want to send a thank you message to everyone across all the list there because without people on the list, we'll not be where we were. And during the pandemic, we did not get affected at all. In people fact, we probably bought more wine. We sold more wines right. than ever. Right. And right. that's the reason why that was like a thank you from everyone from the bottom of our heart at Bionic Wines. So we ship a bottle of Double Lucky to everybody across the list. That means 6,500 bottles of wines. I've never seen social media blow up when that came out. It was like the coolest thing. And it's highly collectible and very cool. I'm afraid to open it. You should open it. This, <laughs> is, our, this is our approach to, uh, to a fine... the reality. Don't sit on it. Don't sell it. Just Enjoy drink the wine. It. Drink it. I, I agree with that. Um, so that's No Girls Wines. Um, you introduce a Tempranillo in there, which is very cool. And you said Grenache, right? Grenache. Grenache it's a blend Syrah. of Grenache, Syrah, and Tempranillo. Right. Um, so that's no girls. Again, they have, you know, a beautiful website. You can also go to Bionic Wines. All right. So finally, we get to your first vineyard, Cayuse, which dates back to the mid-1990s, 96, 97. Um, it's easy to say this is the winery that really launched Christoph Barron. You saw what you wanted. You got in there. You did what you wanted. Um, it's truly your flagship winery, right? Absolutely. Um so tell me a couple things. Tell me what's going on there now. And we've talked about it through the interview. But, you, you know, tell me a little about, you know, Cayuse. We knew how you got there, the stones and all of that. But what's going on there now? And, you know, let's talk about some of the wines. You make more wines there. I don't know, like eight, ten, a dozen. Not necessarily every year, right? Um, at Cayuse. At Cayuse, we have 13 wines. 13. 13 wines now for a total production of uh, roughly 4,500 cases. That's it? That's it. No wonder why it took so goddamn long to get on the way. Well, you, uh, 
there's about 15,000 people on the waiting list. That's it. And unfortunately, I say unfortunately, because my dream will be actually to increase the production to offer a three pack to everybody that have been wa waiting to get the wine. This being said, you, when, when you draw a line in the sand, there's not only wine in life. <laughs> right, right. Does that mean acquisition of more property to... Oh, now we have 70, with all the different projects, 70 acres of vineyards planted. We have another uh, almost 20 acres to plant. And I already promised to my team, this is it. You don't want to go beyond a certain 70 level. 70 acres, it's already planted. Because of your business and the quality. Well, absolutely. So you will up the amount of wine you make, but at some point you want to cap it. Absolutely. That means like we are going to increase a little bit the production of horsepower because there is a new vineyard coming in production. So that means that there is potential to get on a list there. But otherwise, after that's it. I'm done with wine. <laughs> so I left Cayuse last because that was your first winery. And that's really where you formulated you know, what you want to do. Um, it's a very Rhone-driven, you know, wine. So let's let's talk about, you know, some of the wines. I don't want to say bigger production, but the more well-known. The Caillou the Syrah? The Caillou Syrah, For you instance, know, with the yellow-orange label. That's label. really the flagship, right? That's the flagship. This is the first vineyard we planted. And uh, this is actually our uh, biggest production of Syrah from a single vineyard, roughly 750 cases every year and it's this one is unique also some because this is the only sierra that is co-fermented with a small amount of viognier five to six percent viognier every year but that's the old school way in a way right where you add a little viognier in the rhone in the rhone absolutely yeah this being said there is some great hundred percent syrah in Cotrochi as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Not, no argument for either side. Um, also, um, you sort of created one of the nice things, and this represents that, is you are very, you were one of the first guys to do very playful labels, very colorful, mm -hmm. you know, art. Now it's kind of a common thing. You know, people are pressing, you know, uh, how crazy they can go. Um, how did Bionic Frog come about? Ah, Bionic Frog, uh, this is my nickname that I heard when I was working in the Barossa Valley so in Australia. So Frog, because you're a Frenchman, Bionic, because you're just crazy going all the time? Kind of. So you're the Bionic Frog. I was the Bionic Frog, exactly. So I mean, you, made, you named the wine after yourself. I named the wine after myself, and I thought, actually, you know what? It's going to be, let's make it a funny and whimsical label, kind of cartoonish label. And I created the Bionic Wine, actually, in, uh, in honor of one of my mentors from Cornas, a great vigneron, Noël Verset. Who no longer makes... Unfortunately, no Noël Verset right. passed away. And wines are very coveted and hard to get. Yes, and I, I love those wines. And this is because of him. He pushed me actually to use Old Cluster. At the time, I was not using Old Cluster. The first vintage, 97, 98, 99... All the Syrahs, was, they were distemmed. And then when I showed him my first Syrah and we tested um, in his little kitchen in Cornas on the Formica table. In the, and he said, you distem 
all the fruit there, right? He knew and I right said, away. Yes, in your in your right way. He could tell from the character there wasn't Absolutely. that whatever the stems add. Absolutely. And he said you should try actually some stems. Go slow, twenty five percent, and see how you like it. And then from there, go fifty and so on. And I followed his his advice. And definitely, I, this is because of Noel that have have developed that style in Washington very very early. Now it seems like it's kind of the new trend. Yeah. All cluster, all cluster. And, and carbonic. Somewhere so on, yeah. but, but b- yeah. back in the days, that was something uh, something new. So we, we talked about this earlier, and I think maybe even off air, about whole cluster. On a lot of the Cayuse wines, most of it is all whole cluster or high percentage, or like you said, you vary by vintage. We vary by vintage, but between the Grenache and the Syrahs, anywhere between 60 to 90 and sometimes more. So it's significant. Percent. The whole yes. cluster is significant. Um, so that's Cayuse. There's a lot of wines going on there. Um, if you have a chance to taste them, um, please do. They are highly coveted. It's a mailing list thing. You know, we hate to talk about that. I mean, I'm in love with Christoph and his wines, but I didn't bring him on to show you a guy whose wines are hard to get, but they're hard to get. But, you know, be aware of that. Put your name on the mailing list now. Um, I hate to ask this question because um, I don't know if it makes sense or not, but you make wines that are not cheap. And I think everything's justified. And I think people should know that. I mean, if you are looking for special wines and you know special wines have a price that come to them, um, you know, these are some of these wines. But you also make a few wines that are pretty good value compared to like Edith and what is it? Campaselo? Campaselo. Why this is is our rosé of Grenache. Uh, I... It's forty-five dollars, I believe, something like that. And for a rosé, it's not—it's not cheap. It's pretty high. No, price. no. But for your <laughs> wines, it's you know you get to get into that barn and you you know you get to taste all of that, right? Um, but I didn't bring that up. I just want people to know, you know, that these are the um, top of the class as far as wines and the way you do that. You know, they're worth every penny. Um, now that we laid everything out. <laughs> You know, that you have these multiple vineyards, that you are a vigneron in France. Um, How do you split your time? And I guess there's two questions. One is, how do you split your time between the U.S. and Champagne? Because you do have a family there. You have taken over the vineyards. You have production. And then you have multiple vineyards in Walla Walla. So it's sort of like... You can't hang too long at any one place. So how do you, how's the juggle? You know, how do you do that? It's, in fact, it's very easy. Oh, really? It's called working with the best team. It's all about the team. I'm lucky I have some vision, but you can have the best vision without the people. Nothing gets done. All right, so it's having, we are all on the same boat there, and I've got my, my cousins in Champagne and my sister, Isabelle, who runs the side of the business in Champagne. So I don't have to worry. Can't they know exactly that. what I want. I mean, they are like great professionals there. And, and, and that's Ted in Walla Walla. I've got also the best team. And the fun about being in one business for me is also working and always bring the, the, the dream team together. 
It's all about that, working with people, the respect of the people, because without the people, from the vineyards, hands-on, to sales or, or in office, nothing gets done. That, I can't agree with that answer anymore. It's all about people and getting the job done through people. So identifying the right people is important and how you manage them. And obviously you've been successful and people like Elizabeth have been around. Since 2008. You you seem to be doing it right. Um, All right. So I'm going to tell people uh, towards the end of the show um, where they can get more information. But we do a thing on the Grape Nation called the Wine List. Nobody leaves the show without asking five questions. We've asked every guest that's passed through this uh, podcast these five questions, and you ain't getting away from it. So (laughs) I'm going to ask you one at a time. The first question is, what are you drinking now? Not us tasting horsepower, but what do you like to experiment with? What's in the refrigerator? Do your tastes change because of the seasons? You know, if I looked on your table at home or opened your fridge, what are you drinking? A lot of uh, Champagne Pinot Meunier. Why? That's what you make. Why? Because there's more Pinot Meunier Champagne being produced. So you want to taste other stuff? I want to taste them. I want to taste them because for me, it's like the, the connection, the single thread to meet with new growers in Champagne and actually make new friends. Okay. And there's... We all have something in common. We are actually we are, we are crazy about quality. So that's why I'm testing. I'm testing a lot of Pinot Meunier right now. So that's as much as you can get. All right. That's a great answer, and it makes total sense. Tell me the next question. It's a little of the silliest of the five, but do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Not something you necessarily eat every week, month, or whatever, but is there something in your mind that – you know, it's just a terrific combination of food and wine. Oh, there's so many, especially when you love great wine and, and great food. What comes to the top? What comes to the top? I will say that nothing can beat a great Burgundy. For me, so for me, with? for me, that will be to the top, a great Burgundy with a Jambon Persillé. What is that? A jambon persillé. Jambon is ham? A jambon, jambon persillé, yeah. yeah. What it's, is persillé mean? Persillé is uh, per, with parsley. Oh, okay, you very know, simple. Very, very simple. Okay, Th- is it roasted or baked? No, 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 at all. It's baked and it's, it comes in a terrine. And you, oh, it is a terrine. Okay. A terrine, say, uh, so it's served cold, a slice of it, with a nice little salad with a light vinaigrette, some cornichon, some so, beautiful baguette, and a, and a great excuse burgundy. Excuse my ignorance. It's almost like a charcuterie in yes. a way. Okay, so burgundy goes great with that. Many regions in burgundy. Does it matter what burgundy or a, you know, any specific area? Or it doesn't matter. I would say a chambol. A premier cru, a premier cru chambol. Okay, there you go. All right, that's how you answer that question. All right. This, you're going to have to focus a little. I ask everyone their favorite wine restaurant and or bar and a place that you walk into where they have a great list. doesn't have to be the most expensive or the fanciest. The people that work there know their stuff. The vibe at the place is good. It could be Paris. It could be Champagne. It could be Walla. I don't care. What's a place that you know that when you walk in, it's going to be good? There's so many of them. Does anything jump out at you? Because I don't want you to exclude anyone. Like, hey, 
Christoph, I heard that interview. Why don't you mention us? Let's assume you love them all, but... Well, let me tell you something. If there's one place, it's my house. It's my parents' house, and it's my mom's cooking. Okay. <laughs> that's a good one, and that's very politically correct. Now, do your parents collect wine to some extent? Back vintages? Walk downstairs? They have some cool stuff? Not too crazy, or...? For my dad, it's impossible to keep wine. Why? He drinks it? He drinks it. <laughs> That's sort of what you're pushing. Don't don't keep the no girls. Drink it. Well, drink it. But the thing is, actually, I've got a cellar also in France that I share with my dad. And it's very, very interesting because on, on some of the bottles, I have to put a little notes like, do, <laughs> do not open without me. Because usually I tell him, dad, I mean, when you are with friends, go down to a cellar and you're welcome actually to pick Pick up right. what, whatever this, side. this or whatever you want. Well, guess guess what? Just a little story. I went back to France this May for uh, after a year and a half, and I went down to a cellar and I, I saw right away spotted that there was a magnum of Noel Verse, two thousand seven, two thousand, sorry, nineteen ninety seven that was gone. Ooh. So I went back up and I asked the dad. I said, "What, dad? What happened to that magnum? How was it?" And he goes like, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? I said, I was invited at friend's house uh, on, the, on a Sunday for lunch, and I took that magnum as a gift. Oh. And I said, you did not open that magnum? Say no. I said, you have to go see Denis. His name is Denis. Taste it. And, and you asked Denis to open that magnum with you. <laughs> That's funny. That's a good story. <laughs> well, that means your father has a good heart. Absolutely. You know, good for him. All right, fourth question. Favorite all-time wine? When I first started the show, and you asked me how long I've been doing it, I've been doing it for years. I initially asked the question, Christoph, what was that? What was the rarest, most expensive wine you ever had? You know, the Versailles. I don't care about that. What's that wine throughout your career, whether with your parents or making? What's that wine that was important to you, that was a gateway wine, that changed the way you thought about things? Is there a wine in your. Oh my goodness! There are several wines, well, and several I have to choose. Several is good too, but I have to choose the very first, which is and is a bottle of uh, Krug Champagne Grand Année, and we it was back in 1985. Did you know about Krug then? Well, of course, the family oh, right. talk well, about well, dumb question. Your champagne Krug and, and yeah. you know the, the, the top yeah, yeah, cuvee, yeah. Krug Cristal Dom Perignon and All that stuff. and etc etc but this one i remember vividly because there was the first time i was 15 at the time that my dad opened that bottle for a sunday lunch and i smelled that wine and it was just something like unbelievable the aroma was so perfect like for a young kid like me 15 year old and i taste the wine and that it was so lush and so beautiful and i'm like this is what i want to do that's I want I want to be a vigneron and then I told my parents that at that lunch said dad mom please send me to Avis I would like to become like you dad a vigneron that was your that's that bottle that was your gateway wine that's mm-hmm. that's how you answer the question you know like I said it's far from being the rarest or the most expensive but f- for sure the most important all right final question this may be a little tougher for you because I have Psalms on and, you know, some winemakers and all that. But I ask my guests 
to tell me what they think the best wines around 15, 20, 22 bucks American are, red and white. So I'm going to change the question a little. I want you to think about when you think about where the best value in wine is, where is it in a white? Where is it in a red? And I always say this, like if you think about Muscadet, they make terrific wines for not a lot of money. And boy, you open a bottle with some oysters. What, what, what do you think are good value? Like, like, Hey, if I see my kids, I was just with Christoph. This is what he said. You guys should buy. That's not that expensive. What comes to your mind? For me, the wine from Languedoc-Roussillon. Okay. That's, you're not the first guy who said that. Best value, white and red. Best quality. Best quality best for range. the buck. Right. Ab ab absolutely. And it's a shame that it's the biggest wine region in France. Actually, in the world, to one of the biggest in the world. But it's very confusing because it's so big. But it's, it's definitely for everybody... Uh, for millennial, for everyone, it's, it's every day. There's a lot of everyday wine there, so there I would def there is. A there's a lot of organic, low intervention biodynamics there, as much as anywhere. Absolutely, in France. Yep, in France. So in that's France, the reason. The that's Loire, the reason why. All uh, this. That's the reason why I would say for for both white and red, go there. I, I agree, and I think that's you know a fair answer. All right, so that's the wine list. I didn't tell you that we post this on social media. Our listeners love to hear what our guests are talking about, so we will post that in the next few days. All right, we're coming down to the end of the show, but every week we do a segment called the Weekly Wine Sip where we taste a different wine on air. Um, I asked you if you would like to taste the wine on air with me. And not only did you comply, but you sent me three bottles. <laughs> but you and I decided that we were going to taste the 2014 Horsepower. And Horsepower is the vineyard we talked about where everything is farmed with workhorses. Um, so it's an interesting vineyard and it's a uh, Syrah-based. So, Christoph. We have in front of us the 2014 Horsepower, one of your vineyards. Let's, it's called The Tribe. It's Syrah. So here's my questions. Is it all Syrah? Tell me about The Tribe Vineyard. Tell me about 2014. We know about the vineyard, Horsepower. So let's talk about it. And then I want to throw it over the tongue and evaluate it a little. Absolutely. So first of all, yes, it is 100% Syrah. It's located right next to the Enchamberlin Vineyard right there. And the wine, basically, I think this one was about 90% old cluster. And it doesn't see any uh, new oak. It's all neutral demi-mui, 600 liters uh, that are like anywhere between 25 years old to 10 years old. So definitely no new oak in here. Um, this wine spent about a year and a half in a demi-mui, was racked only once. Racked means Rack, into of smaller the barrels or? Of the lees, okay. after a malolactic. And then after that, that spent over a year, almost a year and a half uh, uh, in the in Mimui. It's bottled, unfined, and unfiltered. We don't, we don't filter our wine. We don't find, um, just to preserve the quality and the essence of all the aromas there and, and the hard work in both. Mm -hmm the vineyard and, uh, and the wine studio. And uh, 
I decided actually to share with you some the 2014 because I really love this vintage. For me, it's a classic uh, Walla Walla vintage. What makes a classic? Just the weather? I mean, the way everything played out? Absolutely. Or that was means it difficult? And sometimes difficult years make good wines. I good mean, wine. Well, it means for us, it's like a, it was a little cooler. And it, it did reach physiological ripeness toward the end of September, early October at uh, at lower bricks. That means like more or less you, uh, you'll end up with, with a wine with 13.5% alcohol. That's so this good. is what I'm looking for, even though uh, we harvest when the fruit is ripe and not overripe. So that's, that's the reason why I think it's definitely very classic in, uh, in the mid-30s, uh, 13, uh, sorry, percent alcohol. And then just the elegance that you have from the vintage. I, I get all of that. All right, so we're going to evaluate it. And it's not really evaluating. I want to talk about it. So the color is a fairly deep, dark purple. Not black, but... Translucent. You, know, you can see through the And wine. when you said unfine, unfiltered, it's a pretty clear wine. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? um, so the color, is this... Classic as far as color for what you go for? Yes, absolutely. Especially when you use a lot of old cluster then. Right. You're so, dealing with stems and all that. Stem and then. All right. So that's the color. I'm going to defer to you. Let's do the nose. Tell wow. me what you get on the nose and tell me if that pairs to classic, you know, Rhone Syrahs. What I'm getting on the nose, because it is a 2014 wine. So this wine is seven-year-old. So it's to bottle age. Age, trying to develop some secondary aroma. This being said, this wine has a lot of meat qualities. Very meaty. It's very bloody. When we opened the wine over an hour ago, I said... You said right away. Right away, it's liquid steak tartare. A lot of bloodiness. <laughs> which, which is a characteristic of the region. Tell people what coat roti means. Well, coat roti means like a very roasted... Uh, uh, Slope? Heel. Yeah. Slope. Yeah, right. and it's a roasted meat too. Meat. Almost. Yeah, almost there. All right, so that's the nose. What do you get? Dark fruits or what? What other characteristics? For on the nose, also I get like a beautiful salinity. I get a lot of soy sauce. I get some black truffle. It's <laughs> that black truffle is great to transpire right now, and also a lot of uh, blackberry. It is very, very black fruit. Very black, and like you said earlier, and I think it was off the air, it's incredibly savory. And you did mention umami. And by that suggestion, now that I'm tasting it, you know, those are the predominant, you know, qualities. All right, mouthfeel. Let's throw it over to the tongue. Very smooth tannin, very nice. Smooth, integrated tannin. Medium, medium plus mouthfeel. Mouthfeel. Not thin, not unctuous, but mouthfilling. Definitely well balanced, uh, very fine grain, velvety. No grain. And actually, it's very uh, mouth coating, and you get some kind of like a, 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 it's very wavy. You almost get like a. What does that mean? I've never heard that before. Very wavy for me is like, it's almost you get like a. it starts from the front, then the middle, and it's very it expands on the side. So you think of a triangle from the front of the tongue to the back of the palate, and that's what I mean about like. So wedding. as it's moving, it's not just moving back; it's moving back and out. Out, 
I, got, I, I get that. And it's very long. The length, it's, it's there. Oh, yeah. It's still, still in there. All right. Let's talk about palate. Does the palate replicate the nose? We talked about that savory, umami, blackberry. When you taste it, Absolutely. For me, I get a lot of uh, tapenade, black olive tapenade. I've got a lot of briny character. So it, it, it's, it's there. It's crazy. It's, it's the same thing right there. It's crazy, man. Right. Um, so the palate is, is very savory. You introduce tapenade, which again is another savory sal- saline, you know, type things. Quality. It's very, world. it's very much like a, a, a Northern own, like a Saint Joseph or it is kind of uh, yes and no for a simple reason. I, tell, I know the yes. Tell me the no. The no, we are not trying actually to duplicate what they are doing. I wouldn't think in you northern, would. It's just northern. this. This is what our beautiful terroir in the stone of the Walla Walla Valley has to offer. So you... 97, 2007, 2017, 22. So 25 years later, you were right about those softball-style stones and that terroir because these are the wines that you're making. I believe so. No regrets. Yes, no regret at all. If I had to do it again, I would start again. Look in for the bigger stones. <laughs> all right, so classically, what are great foods to pair with this wine? Oh, the ranch is pretty... Big, I mean, I, so the, give me range wines. Like, what's something interesting on one range? Like, I, I could go with poultry, they are roasted Dutch, definitely a roasted dog. Uh, also, like uh, some red meat. I mean, of course, steaks, but you could go good burger the, wine, right? Sorry, good hamburger wine. It could be, of course, yeah. why not? Uh, lamb, uh, it would uh, hold up to the fatty to the gaminess fatty, of, the lamb. of the lamb, like, yeah, definitely, like some. Uh, some uh, some northern cuisine, northern African cuisine as well. Sure, with some spicy, spices. Spices. It's yes. all about the spices and the sauce, not and always the herbs. meat. Yep. And the herbs as well. And the herbs, for sure. Um, so those are good pairings. All right, so I think this wine's terrific. This is the 2014 Horsepower, um, the Tribe Vineyard, 100% Syrah, whole cluster, right? Um all right, so I'm going to tell you where to get everything. Christoph, we have to wrap up the show. I told you we would run long, but I have no problems with that. Let me do a quick wrap-up, and I want to get some info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. I know that can be confusing. But on the two of those, you can always use the hashtag The Grape Nation, and you will get to everything. As I mentioned, we will post Christoph's wine list. He had some interesting recommendations. So I will post that on social media. And I will give you all the details on this terrific 2014 Horsepower Tribe. Um, Christoph, if we want to find you and your wines on social media and the internet, where are the places we should go? It's never too late to get on the waiting list. Absolutely. It's never too late. So you can www.bionicwines.com. is a site that gets you to everything we discussed. Absolutely. This is the umbrella. Yes. It's all the different projects. I think projects. that's the best place. And this it's done well, place. by the way. Right. And all, 
otherwise we are on on Facebook and also uh, Instagram under uh, Bionic Wine. Okay. As well. Um, do you have a personal account or you do everything through Bionic Wine? Through Bionic Wines. Okay. Um, all right. So I want to thank our guest, Christoph Barron. Christoph, thank you for sitting down with us. We had a lot to cover, and I think we got the most of it. I want to thank all our engineers at Heritage for putting uh, all this stuff together, and also everyone else at Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thank you very much, Sam. Boom! The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.